0: We've been talking quite a a bit about mindfulness, the power of mindfulness, and about conditioning, and about the torments of heart. Michael spoke quite a lot about the kalesas, the torments of heart, last night. (laughs) That was actually totally unintended. (laughs) So (laughs) so tonight I want to talk about um, what flows naturally out of the attentive mind. What flows naturally out of our efforts to be attentive and present and hear. what does flow quite naturally are the qualities that are called the Brahma the qualities of loving kindness, the quality of compassion, the quality of sympathetic or empathetic joy, and the quality of equanimity. These are all specific practices unto themselves that can be practiced, and they all flow quite naturally out of an attentive heart, a present mind. One aspect of wisdom has to do with noticing for ourselves what brings unhappiness and discontent, and what qualities of heart bring contentment and joy and happiness. And then really allowing for the development and cultivation of the qualities of heart that do bring joy and contentment. And the letting go of those qualities of heart, meaning torments of heart, basically, that don't. The word Brahma Vahara translates into divine abode. And abode, I think, is such a great great uh, word, home, you know, home. So we've been talking about finding our home not in conditioned phenomena that arises and passes away, but in the refuge of attentiveness, in the refuge of awareness. So looking at these qualities of heart as a way that we can come home, I think is just, you know, it's a great word, divine abode. And it means that when we're living in any of these qualities, there is naturally a sense of richness, of fullness, of lightness, of not so much of a burden in our lives. So what I'd like to do is to speak about each one of these qualities The Buddha said that whatever we reflect upon, we become. You know, whatever we spend time with, whatever we nurture, is what we become. And so just to speak about these qualities allows us to reflect on what we can delight in, what we can nourish in ourselves. The first quality, of course, is the quality of loving-kindness of metta. And this means a warmth and a friendliness, an an inner warmth and friendliness to whatever it is that's arising. This is a Nasruddin story. Some of you know Mula Nasruddin. Mula Nasruddin decided to start a flower garden. He prepared the soil and planted the seeds of many beautiful flowers. But when they came up, his garden was filled not just with his chosen flowers, but also overrun by dandelions. He sought out advice from gardeners all over and tried every method known to get rid of them but to no avail. Finally, he walked all the way to the capital to speak to the royal gardener at the sheik's palace. The wise old man had counseled many gardeners before and suggested a variety of remedies to expel the dandelions but Nasruddin had tried them all. They sat together in silence for some time. And finally, the gardener looked at Nasruddin and said, Well, then I suggest you learn to love them. (laughs) (laughs) Which is what we need to do, is to learn how to love that which is hard to love sometimes. To learn how to love um, whatever it is that's arising. We have so many preferences. We like this, we don't like this. Uh, This is worthy of our, our care and this is not worthy of our care. This person is worthy of our love and this other person is not worthy of our care, of our love. And metta means bringing some acceptance and warmth and love to both our inner experiences Because if we don't accept what our inner experiences are, then we can't see the difference between what needs to be cultivated and what needs to be let go of. Because we're too busy clinging and pushing away. We're too busy trying to get rid of. And so always some level, deep level, of acceptance is really necessary. So again, brought to our inner experiences learning how to be friendly and warm with our inner experiences, and bringing the same openness and care to others as well. With metta, there's a, there's a feeling of the mind being quite pliable and flexible and not hard, not harsh edges, the boundaries not being quite as, as sticky or, or hard. There's an opening and a melting with metta. And it's an inner space that is not dependent on conditions. It doesn't change according to variety of circumstances. It really can stand on its own. And again, it flows naturally out of mindfulness. It's not so much an ecstasy. It's really more a a quiet kindness. It's really much more a quietness, a quiet... Um, warmth or a quiet kindness than anything so passionate or ecstatic. You know? It can include this, of course, but that's not what it really is. It doesn't have to do with like. you know. It doesn't have to do with liking all of our experiences. That's really kind of too much to ask. It doesn't have to do with liking everybody. That we come in contact with because you know personalities are different and and uh it's too much again to ask that we're going to like everybody's personality or that the chemistry is going to mesh or whatever but what does happen in practice is that we learn how to love we learn how to allow for a spaciousness of heart a big heartedness a very um more room so that we're able to tolerate more. And I don't mean tolerate as in gritting our teeth, tolerate, because that's not, you know, that's that's not real love. But being able to abide with, coexist without having to have certain experiences and certain people completely gone, completely out or else we can't be happy. Hmm. It's really the commitment to not dwell in aversion, to not dwell in in hatred. Now it doesn't aversion arises, hatred arises and we see if we can notice it, we see if we can bring mindfulness to it. And it's not a problem in and of its own arising, because it's really just out of our control. But the nurturing and the dwelling in, that's where we do have choice. You know the the nurturing thoughts of revenge, the <laughs> the dwelling in the thoughts about you know what we want to do to somebody or what we want to do to ourselves at times. You know that those talking to ourselves. So I was talking about the other the other night how much we talk to ourselves and, and belittle ourselves. So that that too, um, you know, to to um, to see if we can not nurture or dwell in states of mind that are going to, without a doubt, bring unhappiness. may feel pleasurable in the moment, you know, because they're familiar, they're safe. But without a doubt, are going to bring grief and unhappiness. Metta, too, is um, an antidote to fear. The Buddha prescribed metta as an antidote to fear. Clearly, it's an antidote to anger but it's also an antidote to fear. Ten years ago, I was at this very same monastery that Michael and I had been talking about. And I was sitting in my kuti, minding my own business. And and someone came up, this woman who had the kuti next to me came up, she was in silence, so she came up and she just showed me her hand. And on her hand, she had written this message to me. She didn't want to talk, so she just you know, showed the message to me. <laughs> and what she had written on her hand was, um, do you want to go to the forest with me? This, this question, in a question mark. And I'm thinking, you know, my goodness, aren't we already in the forest? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this really is enough forest for me. But I thought, you know, here I am. Why don't I just, just do it? It was about 6 p.m. at night, and um, nighttime falls fairly quickly, and then when it's, when it's dark, it's really, really, really dark. So I had to act really quickly. I couldn't like, oh yes, maybe, you know, come back and, and check with me later. I had to just get up and go. So I followed her. She said, grab a blanket or something like that. And so I followed her, and we, and we walked, and we walked, and we walked, and we walked to really, you know, the forest. More more forest. And a very isolated area. And all of a sudden, we came upon this open gathering in which there were many women um, sitting and walking together. It was really, really beautiful. There were just candles to light up the walking paths. And um, this whole group of, of women just sitting and walking together. And so I began to uh, sit and walk, and at some point I realized it wasn't going to stop. You know, we were... <laughs> at some point it hit me that um, there was really no ending to the sitting, there was no ending to the walking, that it... You know, most likely it was going to go on all night, which it did do. I think everyone slept maybe for about an hour. But the rest of the night, we were really just sitting and walking together, and it was a really beautiful experience. So this time, I'm here again in the same monastery, and someone came by at a certain point. I didn't know whether it would happen again, but someone came by at a certain point, this this nun, who didn't speak English, so she asked someone to translate for her to me. And the same question, you know, would you like to go to the forest? And, you know, I was thrilled. I was so delighted. And um, I thought this was really a wonderful thing because I'd been sitting and walking by myself all this time. And I thought, it, you know, it was so nice to have the company once in a while. And um, so I thought I should just do it again. And I was like all prepared and all ready. So I ran back and I, you know, threw a few things into my uh, knapsack. Thank goodness I, I put a flashlight in. Um, and, and all the candles I could gather together, and I, I, last time it was so cold, I cannot tell you what the, the blanket she told me to grab. So I grabbed many blankets this time. <laughs> and um, actually, last time she had a wooden pillow for me that she did, actually didn't want to use herself. she wanted to offer it to me. I, I showed it to Tom Paing afterwards, and he said, "You know, let, get rid of the pillow." It was, it was really just a wood din thing that was supposed to be a pillow for your head. He said, this is really going overboard. So, Which, I, you know, I, I, I didn't need to hear him say that, actually. I, I, <laughs> I knew that already. So grabbing everything up as much as I could and um, following her and into the forest and going, 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 going. And, you know, a path that I, I really uh, was just following her and it was starting to get dark. And finally really way out there she um, showed me my my little place and then she left me there. (laughs) It wasn't this whole nice community it was really just me on my own in this structure that you know I had thought my kuti that I had been used to was open air but this was beyond open air this was just a platform and then some some canvas around it. The one thing I was grateful for is that there were um, concrete stairs leading up to it and there was a gap between the concrete stairs and the platform itself. And so I was thinking, you know, at least the rats aren't gonna be able to get up here. Michael thought this was hysterical because he he, you know, he said the rats can jump. <laughs> <laughs> But I actually, you know, other things happened, but I had a freedom from rat's night because I didn't know that. (laughs) <laughs> at, the, at the time. And it was kind of in the midst of, of, um, of my fear of rats. And so I felt like I was getting a little bit of a break, at least in that direction. But, you know, it was really, really pitch black, no lights around me, n- no way for me to get back to where my kuti was. I didn't have any idea where it was. I couldn't go back on my own. She really just dropped me off and, and left. And on her side, it was really a kindness you know, it was really a, an, an offering. And um, it started to get really, really, really dark. Really dark. <laughs> and um, all the sounds began. And in my, my kuti, the sounds were all there. But, you know, basically I was inside. The rats weren't inside, I was inside. And, you know, they were just sounds. But outside in this situation, uh, no no protection. Just, just an open air situation, and just a lot of of animal sounds, lots of animal sounds, lots of wind sounds, lots of sounds of things creaking, like people coming up, like footsteps, you know, that kind of thing. And so I, I just, I just remembered this about uh, the Buddha offering the metta practice to the monks when he had sent them out into the forest. You know that that's what he had offered them. And so I started working a little bit with the meta, And it was as if I clicked into the lineage immediately. You know, the lineage of, of um, 2,500 years of people practicing these same things and finding peace, finding rest, finding, um, finding security. Now I felt like I wasn't alone, that there was this whole lineage underneath me and behind me, uh, even that thought, of of practicing metta, and I I felt that you know came out of the lineage. It was it was really beautiful, and I survived. Obviously, I'm here to <laughs> to tell you the tale, <laughs> so so it was okay. Um, yeah, there is a big thing since we've been kind of talking so much about fear. There is a, a really big emphasis on working with fear, as I said in the Thai forest tradition. And Tampanya spoke a lot about um, Mahabua actually walking with tigers. In the time that Mahabua was practicing in the forest on his own, uh, there were, happened to be tigers in Thailand. And so the monks would go out, and they would have to work with the growling of tigers, You know, which is okay when we hear it as kind of a myth, but in its actuality, you know, it's, it's really, it's really got to be quite something to walk among tigers. And there's all sorts of stories about how Mahabua worked with that. So we told Tampanya, though, that we'd start small and work our way up. You know, <laughs> I, I wanted to start just with rats and then, you know, work up to chickens, work up to, to m- maybe finally attain tiger mind at some point. Hmm. True loving-kindness is freeing. is freeing. It's not binding. It doesn't contract. It doesn't have strings. It really is freeing. With a soft mind that um, metta brings, wisdom easily grows. It doesn't have, have far to go. It really easily grows in the soft soil of metta and we can make wiser choices. What metta is not, obviously, is anger and resentment and ill will. But when these states arise, we need to accept these states as well. Just to see, to perpetuate any of these states brings more difficulty. But the arising itself, can we accept that this is what's happening? And can we discern, can we investigate? What metta looks like but isn't, is when there is love, but there are strings attached, too. You know, when it's mixed with desire, when we want something out of it. You know, when it's not just a free-flowing love, but there's some contraction, there's some way that we're in bondage because we're offering love if we're going to get something back in return. On the other hand, I think we learn about love through those that we may feel quite close to. And quite attached to. I mean, we have it's it's you know it's a sense of love that we learn, and then we need to expand it. We need to expand it to um, all beings. Sometimes, um, we confuse metta with something that is sentimental or idealistic, and this is not what metta is at all. In other words, we can um, love all beings and, you know, uh, hate the person next to us coughing. So, it has to be extended, extended. Uh, A farmer requested a tendai priest to recite sutras for his wife who had died. After the recitation was over, the farmer asked, Do you think my wife will gain merit from this? Not only your wife, but all sentient beings will benefit from the recitation of sutras, answered the priest. If you say all sentient beings will benefit, said the farmer, my wife may be very weak and others will take advantage of her, getting the benefit she should have. So please recite sutras just for her. The priest explained that it was the desire of a Buddhist to offer blessings and wish merit for every living being. That is a fine teaching, concluded the farmer, but please make one exception. I have a neighbor who is mean to me. just exclude him from all those sentient beings. <laughs> <laughs> in true meta, no exceptions, <laughs> no exceptions, and that's where we're what we're growing into naturally, you know we we coax it, we nudge it, we we practice, and that's what we're growing into naturally. That has to be our vision of the path, because that's all that's truly free. Hmm. Compassion. Compassion comes out of our attention. Compassion comes out of our mindfulness practice, because with our practice, what are we attending to? One thing we're attending to is difficulty, is noticing suffering, being aware of pain, being aware of suffering, in perhaps a way that we're not familiar with being awake to it. And the natural response to suffering when we're open to suffering, not when we're closed or blocked or trying to push it away or pretend that it's not happening, but when we're open to suffering, the natural response is compassion. So the question is, can we be open to suffering? Can we be open to our own suffering? Because that allows us to um, have a natural compassion for others. You know, we, we have these experiences in practice where we touch our own suffering so clearly. The desire arises, I don't want anyone else to have to suffer in this way. And that's compassion. That's a compassionate feeling, a compassionate thought that, I don't want anyone else to have to go through this, I don't want anyone else to feel this way. Now, of course, they will have to. You know, it's not, it's not as if there's power over anyone else's life, or anyone's, one else's karma, or suffering, or anything like that. But that desire is a compassionate response. You know, it, it, it expands something, it enlarges something for us, and it allows us to feel um, empathy. You know, an empathetic response, rather than a reaction of "can't handle it, can't deal with it, it's too much." You know, it allows for that open response. This culture is not so great, as we know, with suffering. You know, it's it's really uh, to to try to push it away, to try to pretend it's not happening, and there is really a very strong uh, kind of code in this suffering, in in this culture, that if you're suffering and you admit to it, there's something wrong with you, you know, maybe even something morally wrong with you, um, that you're suffering. There's kind of this, this thing about equating cheerfulness or, or um, happiness with being morally good or morally better. It's such an odd thing in this culture, because it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's just the nature of, of life, it's the nature of our, of our situation. We become moved with compassion and, and eager to alleviate it. And we can recognize that suffering is natural and that we need to open to it. We need to be awake and aware. We are taught that it will be unbearable, that if we feel what's happening, it will be unbearable and will be overpowered. And what we learn in practice is that we can't be with something for an hour or a day or the next ten days, but we can be with it in this moment. We can be with it in this moment, and that's all that we're asked to do in practice, is to be present with whatever is happening in this moment. We can listen with the heart of Avalokiteshvara. Avalokiteshvara is the um, kind of personification of compassion. And this is a real openness of of heart in which sometimes we act, other times we really need to just listen. We have so much confusion about what to do, how to fix it, how to change it. And oftentimes just to listen deeply is an enormous gift, is an enormous way to help another person. If we're willing to listen deeply enough, maybe we do know what to do. Maybe wisdom arises if we're willing to stay still. Maybe there's a natural knowing what to do instead of being lost in confusion. Sometimes we can be really afraid of suffering because of being afraid of being too vulnerable, afraid of compassion, afraid of being too compassionate because of being afraid that it will make us too vulnerable. I want to read something called Survival of the Kindest. Last week, people around the world were startled to hear about a gorilla that saved a three-year-old boy. The child who had fallen 18 feet into the primate exhibition at Chicago's Brookfield Zoo, was scooped up and carried to safety by Binti Jua, an eight-year-old western lowland gorilla. Binti was reared by humans who rewarded her for parental behavior, but no one had ever taught her how to react to an unconscious boy invading her space. Charles Darwin saw what he considered the first signs of morality in the animal kingdom, and in his writings he tried to incorporate this altruism into his theory of natural selection. But many evolutionary biologists still contend that animals don't exhibit empathy or compassion. Nature is a gladiator show, they say, a grim arena where the strong eliminate the weak without a second thought. Events Such as these make a deep impression on us mainly because the beneficiaries of the animal's protection are members of our own species. But in my work on the evolution of empathy and morality, I have found many instances of animals caring for one another. Evidence so rich that it seems to prove that survival depends not only on strength and combat, but also at times on cooperation and kindness. All animals fight one another from time to time, but many notably gorillas, chimpanzees, dolphins, elephants, and dogs, also have strong tendencies to help one another, because doing so can help the prospects of survival. Yet many evolutionary scientists still take the struggle for life metaphor literally. And social Darwinists throughout history have used this theory to explain why selfishness and callousness are necessary, even positive human traits. From this perspective, Binti made an error in judgment. For those with a broader view, however, her behavior goes a long way toward showing that compassion is a natural tendency in animals and, despite what some politicians have preached, in human societies as well. <laughs> Survival of the kindest. I think that's so so good. Survival of the kindest. Mm. Um. However, one needs to be aware of limits as well. If you're the kind of person who kind of you know jumps in and gets really overwhelmed, then it really is important to back up a little bit and bring some sensitivity in, bring some kindness into the moment. Because we're not moving from being self-preoccupied to being preoccupied with others. It's not that direction. It's really the direction is into being open, you know, unpreoccupied, open, and out of that openness, trusting that compassion and wisdom will will freely flow without inhibition. Mm. What compassion is not, obviously, is any degree of cruelty or manipulation, um, belittling oneself or belittling others. What it looks like but isn't is when there is pity which is very separating. You know, I understand your pain, but there's a sense of of pity behind it. When there is um, anger, when there is fear, and when there is grief. And just to be aware that sometimes we think that these four emotions are compassion, and to investigate whether they really are, to investigate whether, Pity, fear, anger, and grief are compassion. I mean, no problem. We we need to be aware of these emotions as emotions. But it is really important to know what we want to cultivate and what we want to let go of. The third is sympathetic joy or empathetic joy. Just as compassion is a natural response to suffering, Empathetic joy is a response to joy. It's a response to another person's joy. When we find that somebody is doing well or happy or joyful, um, you know, we, we can add our sense of joy to this. It's a generosity of spirit. It's quite challenging, I think, particularly in this culture because it's so competitive. This culture is so enormously competitive. And so there is the sense, even with joy, which, you know, give me a break. But even with joy, it's kind of like, if you have it, I'm not going to have enough. <laughs> you know, as if it's something that that um, that there isn't enough to go around in. You know, if we have a real understanding of practice that everyone has Buddha nature, whether it's manifesting itself or expressing it, Itself or revealing itself or not, that we all have the capacity for enormous joy and peace, then it's easier to feel joy for someone else. In other words, um, practice brings us to a place of inner fullness. And then there is the uh, feeling that, that we do, or the knowledge that we have plenty to share. You know, that it actually adds to happiness to feel happiness for someone else. It actually adds to our happiness. It's a good thing. Mm. But it does, you know, it's a little tough, too, because it begins with our own sense of inner joy and inner fullness. And so this is really where practice comes in, because practice, again, naturally, if we give it time, if we persevere, it naturally leads us to... inner joy. And less of this feeling of not enough, of deprivation. You know? And so being kind with those feelings of deprivation is really important of course because that can lead us to this sense of inner fullness where there is plenty to go around. Empathetic joy is based on self-respect and it's based on a sense of our own integrity. So as we work with integrity in the practice, empathetic joy is much easier. It's also based on forgiveness, a sense of being able to forgive ourselves and to, um, to forgive others as well. There was this great comic that uh, used to be up by the copy machine in, in staff quarters. It was a picture of St. Peter with uh, someone who had obviously just died and gone to heaven and was now meeting St. Peter. And St. Peter is saying to this person, obviously he's like going through a review of his life and whether he should go to heaven, I guess, or or what. And St. Peter um, says to him, uh, in the caption it says, no, no, that's not a sin either. My goodness, you must have worried yourself to death. So, you know, this, this sense of, of softness and, and forgiveness is what empathetic joy comes out of, too. Also, gratitude, really nourishing gratitude, allowing ourselves to feel gratitude and also expressing it, trying to not take anything for granted. Thich Nhat Hanh has this, this kind of nice way of putting this, which is experiencing the, the gratitude and joy of not having a toothache. You know, I mean, when we have a toothache, it's really not so great, and we do what we do, and you know, we're we're waiting for it to go away. But all those 10 million moments that we're not having a toothache, we miss. So I don't mean to be, you know, too cheerful about it or anything like that. But um, there are a lot of moments that we lose because of, of just kind of going on habit that we could hold a little bit more carefully. Taking joy in tiny things helps enormously. In very small things helps enormously. Taking, just having a, a feeling of joy about the sun on us, or, or sitting here and there being a little bit of a breeze or, or something. I, I once heard about uh, a woman who was in an iron lung uh, many years ago, of course and she was in this iron lung for year after year after year. And she said that she actually experienced a great deal of joy when the air would brush across her face. You know, She's totally stuck and the air would brush across her face and she'd feel this enormous whoosh of joy. You know, and she was awake for it. And that, that's the problem, we're not always awake for these moments. Hmm. <clears throat> What it isn't, obviously, is competition or envy or jealousy. What it looks like but isn't is when the joy is attached, in other words, when it's reserved in some way, when it's conditioned joy, when we're comparing what somebody else has with us, when we're qualifying um, joy in some way. I have a an older sister who I slept over at her house one night, and um, this one particular night, and it was really chilly, and she offered me one of her nightgowns, and um, so I wore the nightgown, and then in the morning she said, "Well, you can take that nightgown home with you. I'd like to to give it to you. You know, go ahead and take it home." And so I went home, and then my younger sister called me maybe a couple of days later. And she said, oh, I heard Nancy gave you a nightgown. <laughs> These are the kind of things that go fast in my family. <laughs> the kind of things people talk about. So, oh, I heard you—you—you you, uh, you uh, Nancy gave you a nightgown. And my immediate response, I wasn't thinking about it all at all. My immediate response was, yes, she did. And she's got so many of them. You know? I mean, she, she really does. She's <laughs> Just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> but she really goes, she, I mean she does, she has tons and tons and tons, of nice but it was also a gift. You know, it was also a really generous gift, and so I was like kind of cutting down her generosity a little bit. Yes, but, you know, instead of, yes, she gave me a nightgown, isn't that nice? Yeah? I caught it the next moment, it was, it was such an interesting um, thing to see. Yeah. It's very interesting working with Mudita because we do think that um, we do have this very strong belief that we have to hold on to whatever tiny bit of joy uh, we have. Whatever tiny bit has, of joy has arisen or that we know of, we have to try to hang on to it for dear life. And yet it really is true. Um, And we can experiment with this, that the more joy we can feel for other people's happiness, the more joy really is there. I I remember a particular yogi who um, had a very difficult situation and a very difficult person that she was working with. Uh, It was a situation of betrayal and, you know, it was kind of the last situation that you wanted the person to be happy in, her, her, quote, enemy. Um, you know, was actually doing quite well, and she was having a really hard time. So it was the last situation you'd want the person you're having difficulty with to be seemingly having a really good time. But she was practicing, and she was practicing uditin, so she thought she would try it anyway, sending loving-kindness to this person. Um, I'm sorry, sending empathetic joy to this person. And she said that it was actually extraordinary. She did it just because she was at the end of a rope and she didn't know what else to do because <laughs> she was suffering so much. But she said it was actually quite extraordinary because it got her through the bitterness. It got her through that, that holding, that, that feeling that if this person is happy, I'm not going to be happy. It pushed her through to a really different place. So, you know, it's like the opposite thing we would think of, and it's the opposite thing than we would actually want to do. But it's quite interesting to take that risk and try. Equanimity is the last of the Brahma Viharas, And equanimity, it just, you know, it's really our whole practice. The, the um, mindfulness leads Uh, to equanimity, to a non-reactivity of mind, to a real balance of heart and openness of heart in the midst of the enormous ups and downs that we are likely to experience as human beings. It's really being able to keep the heart open for there to be more strength of heart and acceptance of change. It's embracing a steadiness It's embracing a steadiness in the midst of change, in the midst of movement. But it's not rigid, it's not fixed, it's not locked in in any way. It's really just not taking sides with uh, greed and aversion. It's really the middle path. We find ourselves not as pulled around by inner states when there is equanimity when there is attention, we find ourselves not quite as pushed around by outer circumstances when there is equanimity, when there is attention. It's really having the biggest perspective possible in life. It's the opposite of closure or pettiness. It's having a really big perspective. It's having a really big mind. And it allows for the sustaining of both loving-kindness and compassion without getting burnt out. You know, without having this idea that because we're extending loving-kindness to someone, that they should they should feel better. You know, because maybe they will, and maybe they won't. In other words, it's having a sense of what is possible and what isn't. Mm. And so it's not holding these grandiose ideas of um, you should feel better, you should be better already because I'm sending you all this energy. Yeah? It's kind of up to a lot of things, but you know, certainly up to them, too. Uh, there's a really great line by T.S. Eliot. It's, uh, teach me how to care and not to care. And we're holding both in our practice. We're holding deep, enormous, uh, grand caring. And at the very same time, We are holding equanimity. We are holding letting go and a sense of balance. We can't miss one of the two. If you say, teach me how to care, without the not to care doesn't work. If you say, teach me not to care, that definitely, absolutely doesn't work. But it really has to be both held in the very same breath. Teach me how to care and to let go. Teach me how to, to care and to understand that things work in a certain way, that we're learning more and more about nature, about how things actually work. When there's equanimity, there is um, usually some degree of humility without the tendency to get carried away by this and that, without the tendency to get kind of overly excited about certain things that are happening and to be decidedly uh, not excited about other things. But a sense of humility, a sense of um, uh, not kind of sticking up so so much to get cut down. Really a sense of evenness. And as well a sense of stability so that we're not quite as uh, throw it around by praise and blame and by loss and gain. These very, you know, challenging situations that we confront as human beings. But equanimity allows us to be present when we're being praised without being too swayed, without getting too big of a head. Equanimity allows us to not fault pieces when we're being blamed and to hold it in a balanced place. Equanimity allows us to not decide too quickly when there is gain that it's a really great thing. Equanimity helps us to see that when there is loss, we don't know. We have no idea, but can we hold it? Can we be in the moment with how things are? Obviously what it's not is reactivity and chaos and contraction. It's not moving mechanically towards what is pleasurable and away from um, what is painful. What it looks like but isn't, you know what what it sometimes masquerades as, and this is sometimes a particularly uh, difficult uh, spiritual problem problem for people on the path, even after many years sometimes, is for there to be some degree of um, indifference or of coolness, where um, there's aversion and it looks like equanimity. You know, when there's just kind of a flatness or a dullness, everything's cool, you know, everything's cool. Meanwhile, uh, you know, there's this enormous tightness and, and you can see that there's really actually a big problem going on. Or else there's just the inability to extend oneself where one needs to extend oneself. And oftentimes, this is just, you know, simply being intimidated by emotions. Viewing emotions as enemies and as problems and as something that actually shouldn't be happening if I were practicing correctly. When of course, you know, emotions are are part of life and can we relate to emotions as flowers that arise and pass away. Really just as nature arising and passing away instead of being so frightened, so intimidated. So, our practice has to do with connection. It has to do with connecting with things exactly as they are. And when there is loving attention, there is naturally less preoccupation, less being involved in these worlds that we know are just self-created, you know, off the wall, nuts, uh, leading us to more delusion. I'm talking about the stories that we tell ourselves, you know, the, the uh, incredible castles that we build within the mind. And then a little bubble, you know, a little pin comes out and, and pops it. That, that pin is the pin of, of, um, of mindfulness. That pin comes out and it pops it and, oh, oh, you know, here, I'm just sitting again, or I'm just, I'm just, yeah, I'm just standing, I'm just walking, I'm just lying down. Nothing is actually happening in this moment. So over and over again, we return to that place in which nothing is happening. And that's a wonderfully comfortable place to be. Mm-hmm. Let me end with a um, with a poem. It's by uh, Mary Oliver. Mm-hmm. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. For a moment with our wild and precious life. <laughs> Thank you for listening.